Welcome to A New Republic, An Oral History of the Indian Constitution. Episode 8, Dayaki. Now, bear with me a little while while I'm going to go on a tangent. I know we are supposed to be talking about the legislative implications of the Government of India Act of 1919 in this episode. And I'm prom- I promise you, we will get there in just a little bit. But first, just bear with me. Now, when it comes to governmental bodies, different nations in the world use different ways of dealing with their geographies and their diversities. And this is particularly the case in countries that are either very large or very diverse. They try to make up for this complication by having uh, several administrative institutions. So it shouldn't be particularly surprising that India has a structure that it does, which is basically a union of states bound together by a constitution to a central government. But why does India have the particular federal structure that it has? Why doesn't it have a model that corresponds more closely perhaps to the type of federalism that they have say in the United States or Switzerland or maybe Australia? And even if you're somebody who isn't particularly worried about political science or the legislative implications of a federal structure, it's worth wondering how India would function differently under different systems. For instance, what if India had the tremendously loose structure that Switzerland has, where each state or canton functions with nearly complete independence? Or what if we function like the US, where individual states take diverse positions on important topics such as gun control or gay marriage? Alternately, what if India took a more unitary approach, where the central government is paramount, there are no state legislatures, and all local government is limited at the maximum to cities, municipalities, and maybe village bodies. Imagine how difficult it would be to manage such a large and diverse country through a unitary government. I mean, how would you even structure such a unitary government? How would you choose how many representatives from which state would uh, sit in the Lok Sabha? And would smaller marginal states even find adequate representation? For instance, if you are from... uh, from one of the northeastern states or you're from one of the smaller states like uh, Kerala and if you didn't have uh, a state government at all, how do you get anything done by the people in New Delhi? Now these are all interesting scenarios worth thinking about. Also, if you think that a country's choice of system of government is final, think again. A few days ago, I was at a panel discussion at the King's India Institute here in London where one of the panelists said, that just a few years ago, Australia was actively considering abandoning its federal structure for a completely new unitary system. Because currently, Australia has six states, each with its own state constitution. How interesting. And apparently, they've decided to carry on with the federal structure, but it would have been an interesting exercise to observe at least. Now, all this makes for very interesting intellectual consideration, but why have I bored you for so long with uh, this big monologue on federalism. This is because I think the single greatest legacy of the Government of India Act of 1919 is our diarchy or the current federal structure that India enjoys. And while we take our structure of centre and state for granted, there is nothing actually particularly obvious about it. There is no reason why India had to have that structure. The United Kingdom itself is unitary and not federal. In fact, most of the countries in the world that inherited the Westminster model of parliament actually have unitary governments. And Australia, Canada and India are some of the rare federal exceptions. So why was this so? 
And how did the Act of 1919 make us federal? This is what I'd like to dwell upon in this episode. Now, like I said before, the Government of India Act of 1919 was widely seen in India as a betrayal. In the United Kingdom, on the other hand, it was seen as something of a desperate stopgap arrangement, something of a of a devious way of giving these Indians the perception of greater self-government without actually yielding any meaningful control. So what the British did was to create or modify institutions at the central and provincial levels and fill it up with even more elected Indians. Simultaneously, they created a new classification of legislative powers. All subjects of government would fall in two lists, a central list that is reserved for the central government in Delhi and a provincial list that is transferred to the various provincial governments. Further, these provincial powers were subdivided into two subgroups. Transferred powers were those which were transferred to the elected legislative council, and the reserved powers were those which were reserved for the local governor and his executive council or um, kind of his personal cabinet. Now, if all of this sounds highly confusing, all this talk of divisions and subdivisions, I think that was exactly the purpose of the act. The British, I think, were hoping to confuse the Indians into submission and peace. Now, the publicly stated rationale behind the Government of India Act of 1919 was greater self-government and growing political experience for Indians. The idea being that eventually, once the Indians had got the hang of uh, limited self-government and political functioning, they'd be ready to govern themselves. In reality, there was actually very little self-government put into practice because of this act. Because if you read the act very carefully, you see that in every situation, both at the provincial level and at the central level, the governor or the governor general had full freedom to nullify any of the rules suggested by elected members and enact whatever he wanted to. Essentially, this is what the British were doing. They were asking Indians to participate in elections, perhaps win these elections, and then perhaps participate in legislative bodies. Perhaps some of them would even become ministers. They'd handle a small set of transferred subjects. They'd make laws for these transferred topics. But at the end of the day, at the same time that this was going on, the governors and governor generals were fully free to completely ignore them and do as they wished. But by making the system so complex, the British were hoping that the Indians wouldn't realize that much of the, uh, the uh, power that was being yielded to them was hogwash. Unfortunately for the British, many Indians, especially the members of the Indian National Congress, saw through this complete chicanery. In fact, protests broke out almost immediately. And in 1920, when the first general elections were held in India under these arrangements, the Indian National Congress boycotted them. Instead of participating in the elections, the Congress, uh, led by Gandhi by this time, were busy with the non-cooperation movement. Now, to give you an idea of what transpired at the provincial level, let me tell you a little bit about what happened in Madras in 1920. So the elections were held in the Madras province in November 1920, and 98 members were elected. Another 29 were nominated by the governor to give you a total of 127 legislators. Another seven seats belonged to the governor's own executive council. And so therefore, you had a grand total of 134 legislators for the entire province of Madras. Now, this province at that time had a population of 40 million. But according to the rules then prevalent, only 1,248,156 people were actually eligible to vote. Of these, approximately 25% were 
और 303,558 पीपल एक्चुअली वोटेड नाउ लाइक ए सेट बिफोर बिकॉज द कांग्रेस एट बॉयकॉटेड द इलेक्शन द जस्टिस पार्टी हैड द लार्जेस्ट नंबर ऑफ सीट्स इट्स मोर और लेस अ गिवन दैट इफ द कांग्रेस एट पार्टिसिपेटेड इट प्रॉबली वुड हैव वन प्रोविंशियल इलेक्शन ऑलमोस्ट एवरीवेयर इन इंडिया बट इन मद्रास द जस्टिस पार्टी केम फर्स्ट with 63 seats out of uh, 98 and formed the government very soon however the ministers began to realize how little power they actually had and this quote by kurma venkata reddy naidu a senior justice party leader i think adequately adequately captures the frustrations he says and i quote i was a minister of development without the forests i was a minister of agriculture minus irrigation As a minister of agriculture I had nothing to do with the Madras Agriculturists Loan Act or the Madras Land Improvement Loans Act the efficacy and efficiency of a minister of agriculture without having anything to do with irrigation agricultural loans land improvement loans and famine relief may better be imagined than described then again I was minister of industries without factories boilers electricity and water power mines or labor all of which are reserved subjects Poor frustrated Naidu said all this to the Madiman committee that arrived in India in 1924 the committee had been sent from britain to see how well this diarchy system of central and provincial governments were functioning by and large and shouldn't be surprised at this the committee went back to london and said that everything was okay they said that the current system of diarchy was giving indians adequate political experience adequate perhaps by british standards but clearly many of the indian ministers were deeply dissatisfied however it alienating the congress which at this time had become tremendously popular thanks to mahatma gandhi the act only helped to kick the nationalist struggle into high gear in some ways the government of india act of 1919 this betrayal of an act was the last straw that broke the freedom fighters back to me this act is a singular decision that sets indian leaders and the indian population on a path that ultimately culminates in independence but there is also some high quality irony here and you should think about it so while the act of 1919 outraged so many people it is also the first real act that has persisted in many ways into present day india so for example it incubates the federal structure that we have today it introduced the idea of a separate state list and a central list that we have today it also i think creates an asymmetric federalism where the center can overrule a state if required irrespective of the state's wishes and we've seen this several times um, through the for example through the implementation of president's uh, rule so if this was a act that was hated so much in its time why have we retained so much of it now i believe that our founding fathers had the same fears and motivations that the british did they too wanted to retain strong central control and also be in a situation where they could rein in the states whenever required we look at this uh, this um, this fear and this paranoia of our founding fathers in greater detail when we discuss the constitutional debates but the irony here is uh, not easy to miss and it's worth thinking about so we very very briefly discussed the implications of the government of india act of 1919 an act that established institutions but also inflamed patriots in the next episode i want to set aside some time to talk about mahatma gandhi and what happens when he assumes leadership of the nationalist movement in the 1920s i know that this would be a digression uh, from our stated mandate which is to look at constitutional developments but i think gandhi plays an important if somewhat indirect role 
in the rest of the story. His presence when he was alive and his philosophies after his death continue to loom large over the Indian constitution. So next time, we'll glance at this tremendous man and this tremendous legacy. Till then, take care and see you.